0: amen thank you Jason that much needed reminder that the reason that we're here is all about Jesus Christ it's not about me it's not about music it's not about a building it's all about Jesus we need that reminder I know Jason and, and Brad went to a worship conference this past weekend and it was full of you know a star-studded cast of you know it had uh, the guy that wrote that song led something yesterday and uh, I think John Piper and like all these big names were there. Chris Tomlin, my favorite, Andrew Peterson was there. And I asked Brad this morning, I said, So who impressed you the most? And he said, Jesus. He didn't think twice. Just immediately he said, Jesus. Jesus Christ, because it's all about him. And I said, That's a great answer. <laughs> That's the right answer. It's all about Jesus. And we're going to continue to talk about Jesus as we walk through John this entire year. If you're watching at home, it's 11 o'clock. It's going to be after 1128 when this finishes, okay? I'm just telling you now. So just hang with me. We're going to be in the text. Just sit back and you can watch the whole thing online on on Facebook or at woodmontbaptist.com. Click on worship services and you can watch the whole thing there start to finish. It's going to be a, a good one. So just... Get ready, okay? We're walking through the entire Gospel in 2019, or at least through November of 19, and we're in chapter 2 today, starting in verse 13. We just wrapped up a series on how Christ exceeds our expectations, how He's more than meets the eye. He's not just some poor rabbi, not some young rookie rabbi, but He's the Messiah, and we're seeing that unfold through the Gospel of John as He reveals His glory, as He shows his disciples and us who he truly is and today we're going to start a new series for the month of February called brand new it's one of our favorite Ben Rector songs that my family listens to called brand new but all these texts that we're going to see for these four weeks in February have to do with the power of transformation and our need for complete and total transformation and how the gospel has this amazing ability to make us new from the inside out and so we're going to see today is a a new temple and then next week we're going to see what it means to have new hearts and then we're going to close the month out with two sermons on what it means to have new birth to be born again so let's stand if you're able to this morning in honor of god's word as i read our text for today john chapter 2 verses 13 through 22 hear the word of the lord the passover of the jews was at hand And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, I think we all have a tendency to make Jesus into our own image, right? We have a tendency to conform Jesus to what we think he ought to be. You know, Talladega Nights, you young adults know when when Ricky, Bobby, and and what's the other guy? I don't know the other guy. When he prays, he prays to who? Baby Jesus. Dear Lord, baby Jesus. Dear Lord, six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus, right? Because he likes to think of Jesus as a baby. And we tend to do this. We laugh, but we all tend to make Jesus into our personal preferences. We don't often think of some, you know, Palestinian homeless rabbi, which is what he was. We tend to, to, to like certain images that we get in the Bible of Jesus. I prefer one. I love, you know, the Gospel of Luke really portrays Jesus as a humble, gentle Savior who, who cares for the marginalized, for, for women and for the poor. And he, he treats them all as equals. He says, let the children come to me. I, I like that Jesus. That really, you know, jives with my personal convictions and preferences But when I read a text like today of a guy who runs into a temple and and starts flipping over tables, we were talking about it in staff meeting, Trey said, oh, I love this passage. Richard said, you should unhinge one of the pews and just flip it over and freak everybody out. (laughs) Richard, calm down. No, we're not doing that. I get a little uncomfortable with texts like these. Texts like these confront my own personal preferences in a way that's discomforting. It it, it really upsets my nice, safe images of who I'd like to think Jesus is and shows me the reality of who Jesus actually is. You know, the Bible often portrays Jesus as a lamb, right? We've been talking about how John the Baptist pointed and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I told you about that great chart that Alan Wharton sent me that tracks the image of the Lamb as the Messiah from Genesis 22 and uh, the, the Lamb that was provided for the sacrifice instead of Isaac, right? And, and going through the Passover and Exodus, how Jesus was the perfect spotless Lamb that the blood of the Lamb on the doorway would atone for the sins of the people and cause death to pass over their homes, right? Jesus is the Lamb. I love that image. You know, lambs are... Are nice and soft. Do you know what a lovey is? Do you know what a lovey? I, I didn't have a lovey growing up, but this is a thing now. Um, I, I know Bruce and Angie Bennett—they're about to have another grandbaby. You probably have a lot of these, and and I think it's a racket. You know, Jonathan—we're talking about everything's a racket. It's trying to get people to buy more things for baby showers. I think, but every kid I know that was born in the last you know ten years has probably ten or twelve loveys. You know, you got to have a bunch of these, and and most of them are sheep. Isaiah calls this sheep lovey. I think this was May's. Morgan said this was actually May's lovey. He calls it sheep lovey. And sheep make great loveys because sheep are soft and they're, they're cuddly. Sheep are, are uh, not very active. They're pretty passive creatures. They're not really uh, independent. They follow the herd. You don't really have to worry about them doing something on their own. They're safe and they're comfortable. That's why a lot of lovies are made of sheep but we have another image of Jesus that scripture also gives us and it's equally as important we don't often talk about it but Jesus was from the lineage of King David I can actually sing you his genealogy if you want to hear it I can I can do that not today but David was of the tribe of Judah Judah was the, the, of the 12 tribes of Israel, it was the one from which the kings and the the dynasties came from the tribe of Judah. And the symbol of Judah was a lion because the lion's the king of the jungle. The lion's the top of the food chain. Nobody takes the lion down. In In the book of Revelation, we get a picture of Jesus on his throne reigning over the new creation, the new heaven and new earth. And he's described there as the Lion of Judah, who has assumed his rightful place on the throne. And every creature, all the heavenly beings and all the earthly creatures, bow in awe and reverence before the Lion of Judah. I love how C.S. Lewis characterizes the, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Aslan. He's a, he's a huge lion. And when Aslan shakes his mane, it says that shimmering light goes forth throughout the earth. And when he roars, all of Narnia trembles with the weight of his glory as it goes forth. He towers over the the Pevensey children, right? He's just this massive, hulking king of the jungle. And remember that scene before the Pevensey children ever meet Aslan for the first time? They're in the home of the beavers. And Mr. Beaver's talking about Aslan's on the move. There's rumors that he's coming back to Narnia. The snow is melting. And the children are like, who's Aslan? They're like, who's Aslan? And they're describing him to the children. They're saying he's got these huge teeth and he's got these mighty claws and he's muscles and he's enormous. And Lucy, who's like five or six, is just cowering in fear. And she says, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, goodness, no, he's not safe. Did you just hear what I said? He's, he's got all these weapons, and He's powerful, and He's mighty, but He's good. Remember that? He's not safe by any means. He's not tame. He's not safe, but He's good. He brings swift and mighty justice, but we can always trust His goodness, His righteousness, His rightness when He judges. So here we have a story in John 2 where we see the lion in action. Verse 12 tells us that after the miracle of water into wine in Cana, that Jesus and His mom and His brothers, yes, Jesus had brothers, you know the the perpetual virginity of Mary uh, that some faiths teach. We don't believe that because the Bible says that He had brothers. And they stayed in Capernaum for a few days. How many of you have been to Capernaum? Fultures, I know. You've been to Capernaum? I didn't know that. That's amazing. Not Capernaum, Georgia. Caperna- okay, nice. The real one. That's impressive. I've never been there. Capernaum is a seaside town, right? On the Sea of Galilee and it would become kind of the home base for Jesus and kind of his headquarters for his ministry from this point on. And the it became time, it says there at the end of that verse, to celebrate the Passover. And Passover was kind of like Christmas for us. It was a whole season. It took a month to prepare for Passover. It was a season of excitement and celebration and preparation. So Jesus and his disciples actually made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate. All the, the Jews in the Palestinian region who were capable financially and physically to, to make that pilgrimage would go up to the city of Jerusalem. It was uphill, no matter where you came to it from and for these four major feasts and festivals that the, the Jews observed, they would try to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So the whole city crowded. It's, it's bustling with activity. Uh, scholars tell us there were over 250,000 people in the walls of Jerusalem. It's not that big ge- geographically, but they would pack in for, this, uh, for these festivals. So you have all this activity, and Jesus walks into the temple, which is the center of all the activity in Jerusalem. The temple was built at the highest point of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was built on the highest point in Palestine. It dominated the skyline, if you will, of the city of Jerusalem. The temple was the focal point. And there's two Greek words in this passage that are both used for temple, and they're they're very different. The, The word that's used in verse 14 here is hieron, which refers to the entire temple complex. The other word is naos, and naos refers to the, the inner part of the temple. Show that picture, Andy. The inner part of the temple where only the, the priests could go and, and the Jewish men, that's right there, where the, that's the naos, where the Jewish men would go to make sacrifices uh, and atone for their sins, and, and there was an altar there just through that, that gate, the, the Nicanor gate. Uh, this is not how it looks today. This is a, a replica. Uh, it was all torn down. And, 70 A.D. But the the, the naos is that temple proper there in the middle. And we know that Solomon actually built the first temple, this beautiful temple in the 900s B.C. And it was destroyed by the Babylonians when they came in in 586 B.C. So when the exiles were released by Cyrus, the the Persian, uh, in 535 B.C. And they came back to Jerusalem. What's the first thing they did when they got back to Jerusalem? They built the temple. The temple was the center of Jewish life because it, it contained all the cultic practices of worship and rituals for the Jewish people. So Zerubbabel, that's a great word to say, Zerubbabel, he was of the line of David. He was one of those Judahites who led the first group of captives back from Babylon and they built the second temple. But it was a pretty modest structure. It wasn't you know, a really beautiful thing, so When Herod the Great, the the Roman puppet governor of Judea, when he became the, the, the king of Judea in 37 BC, he decided to make an upgrade. Herod the Great was determined to leave a legacy behind in the great buildings that he would establish, all these amazing structures that he spent tons of money on. But his masterpiece, his lasting signature piece was the temple. He was raised as a Jew. He knew the importance of the temple. He said, this will be my masterpiece. So he spared no expense, and he ordered a massive overhaul of the temple starting in 20 BC. And the crazy thing is, it wasn't actually completed until 66 AD. You see in the passage, they say that it took 46 years just to build the naos, but the whole hieron complex wasn't finished until 66 AD. So over 80 years of construction and the crazy thing is in 70 AD it was completely destroyed by the romans it only stood for less than 4 years i think that's fascinating so herod expand, expanded this temple complex to have all these porticos you see there's columns those are all different porticos all, all, all along it and these massive courtyards on the outside those were the court of the gentiles That's where anyone, whether you were Jewish or not, was able to come and pray and worship in those outer courtyards, and that is where Jesus and his disciples walked in and found what they found. Instead of all nations coming to pray and learn about the one true God, they find a den of iniquity. It's been turned into Las Vegas. Anyone was welcome to come and pray in in those court of the gentiles and they have turned this into a a den of iniquity isaiah 56 7 the lord says my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples all nations the temple wasn't meant just for jews It, it contained a place that was meant for the whole world to come and learn about the true Lord because the Lord is the God of all creation. He desires all nations to know him as Lord and Savior. So when Jesus and his disciples arrive there into the court of the Gentiles, this holy and sacred place that's set apart for worship and evangelism in those courtyards, it shocks them. D.A. Carson, the great New Testament scholar, writes: instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, don't you love that? The murmur of prayer? There is instead a bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration, prolonged petition, there is instead noisy commerce. There's animals everywhere. There's sheep, there's cows, there's birds, it says. Do you know, have you ever experienced what a lot of sheep and cows smell like? It's gross. Gross in God's house. But the animal's stench wasn't as bad as the human sin that Jesus stumbled upon in those courtyards. The holy temple of the Lord had become Vegas. Everyone was there to make a buck off these poor weary pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem to worship to encounter the holy God at Passover. And the crazy thing is it wasn't even the Romans who were exploiting the people, it was the priests. It was the Jewish priests who had set up this whole system of exploiting the poor. First, the pilgrims had to pay a temple tax just to gain admission to the temple, and they couldn't use the Roman coins that they all had because Caesar's picture was on it. So they had to exchange their Roman currency for the... Jewish shekels and the money changers were happy to exchange their money so they could pay their temple tax but of course they charged a fee. Have you ever exchanged money in a foreign country before? I remember the first time I went to Spain and I'm in the airport in Madrid and I decided to get some euros and so I hand a fresh Benjamin $100 bill to the currency exchange guy and he he gives me some euros. It was pretty easy. I was like all right I got some euros. I didn't know the exchange rate. I was like I'm sure it was fine. And then I actually did the math on it. I only got back about 75 bucks worth of euros, right? They charge you an arm and a leg to exchange currency at some of these places. I was shocked that, that that's kind of what was happening in this place that was meant for worship. It's not even so much that money changing is a bad thing. It's kind of a necessity, right? You, you have to get euros if you're in Europe, right? It's, it's not even that selling animals was such a bad thing. Because people needed to make sacrifices. It was convenient for them not to have to bring them from their home. The the problem was mainly with the location. Where are they conducting these activities? In the holy temple of the Lord. In the courtyard that was designed for prayer and petition for all nations. The corruption of the priesthood had led to the profaning of the Lord's house. And Jesus was not having it he makes a whip of cords it says probably from the the ropes that were used to tie the the animals and he sends everyone packing the the phillips jb phillips translation of the bible dr sherman quoted it yesterday at doris's funeral not this verse but the phillips translation it says verse 15 so he made a rough whip of rope and drove the whole pack of them sheep and cattle as well out of the temple it's the Lion of Judah. And he lets everybody know, everyone who's there know that I'm giving you a choice. You either clear out of here or you get whipped. What's it gonna be? I'm turning over your tables. You are done, you're done. No more evil practices here in this place. Pours out their coins. You want your money, you pick it up. Whew. it's tough to imagine Jesus doing this, don't you? It's, it's an, I don't condone violence. But we have to see that this is a moment of extreme sin and extraordinary circumstances and it calls for an extraordinary reaction from our holy God. He has this righteous, white-hot anger that warranted and even necessitated an appropriate response, extreme response for extreme sin. Jesus is standing there, and he's got this whip in hand, and his disciples are amazed by what they're seeing. They thought they were just following this rabbi again at this point. And they remember somehow the Spirit calls to their mind, Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. Passion for God's glory. Passion for God's worship to be increased to be magnified, for his greatness to become displayed throughout all creation will be my obsession. The Greek word for consume here means to be eaten up. When Martin Luther, the reformer, was trying to explain this passage to his church, he said, you know what it's like to to, to have something eating away at you? That's what this was, to have something eating us up. The Hebrew word for consume means in a flame. Jesus burns white hot for the glory of God. You know, in in our culture today, we've obviously gotten some really important things backwards. We've misplaced our zeal. Watch the Super Bowl this afternoon and see some zeal that may be misplaced. We're zealous over the wrong things. Our society is so confused over what to value. Our values and our our meaning and purpose is all distorted. Gordon Dahl, he was a pastor who wrote this in the the 70s. He wrote this, and it's still true today. It haunts me. I've, I've said this before. Most Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. That's so good. Most Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. We've gotten it all twisted. Think about it, we give thanks to our work for providing for us. I'm so grateful for my job, it's how I eat. My my job is my identity, it's who I am, it defines me. I eat, sleep, and breathe my work. That's how we're raised to think, isn't it? Our work is who we are, it gives us purpose, meaning. It's what we write about in our obituary that's wrong that should not define us that should not be what we eat sleep and breathe and then we put in long hours of hard work for what's supposed to be recreation you know someone generously after watching my golf game on the golf trip in august donated some golf lessons to me <laughs> i'm so grateful i can't wait to take them in spring and and improve my game i love the game of golf i think it's great But I'm not one of those guys that's going to leave work early three or four days a week and go to the range and spend thousands of dollars on equipment and training and upgrades so that I can be good at golf. You know what I mean? Whenever I see someone who's like breaking 70, I'm like, okay, you spend way too much time and money on this. (laughs) Values. It's supposed to be recreation. It's supposed to be fun. Think about how much Schools spend on sports as they do. A lot of schools spend more on sports than they do academics. That's wrong. Finally, we play at our worship. Me asking Brad, "Who did you like at the? You know, who was most impressive at the conference?" That's entertainment. We expect worship to be a show. You may say, "No, not me." How often have you said, "I don't like that song"? I have. How often have you said, "Nathan really was off his game"? I have. <laughs> Didn't get anything out of that one. We play at our worship. We show up at church expecting to be entertained. We, we say, the paint color's ugly here. Or, the, the Bibles is boring. You've got to dress it up. That Sunday school class is snobby. I don't want to go there anymore. We, we want a show. We want a production. We want to sit back in our pews and be wowed. We tend to think that worship should be shaped more by our personal preferences than by the Word of God. That's wrong. It's it's nothing new, right? God's people have always struggled with with getting their values in the right order. In the days of the prophet Jeremiah, the people of Israel had gone after idols, and they'd broken the covenant promises that they had enacted in these covenants with the Lord God they figured they could always count on the temple being there. We always got the temple. We can do whatever we want to. We got the temple here. We're covered. We're good. They figured they could just float in, do their sacrifices, and go out saved. That's not true. Jeremiah called them out on it. Look at Jeremiah 7 verses 8 through 11. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, Swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it. Yes, it has declares the Lord. The people came into God's house, they did their thing, and went through the routines, and then left and said, let's go back and do whatever we kept on doing, right back into their sin. Nothing changed. I've been in a lot of committee meetings here, and talked with our deacons. We talked about new proposals, and they said, you know, we tried that before, and nothing changed. We we, want to see change. We want to see transformation. That's what this whole series is about. We wanna be different. We wanna be more like Jesus and less like ourselves. That takes transformation as a body of Christ. This is the text that Jesus quotes, Jeremiah seven, verse 10, when he cleanses the temples and the other gospels. You know, the other gospels, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they show Jesus cleansing the temple at the end of his ministry when he comes into Jerusalem during Holy Week, And, and that's because there were two temple cleansings. He came to Passover in Jerusalem at the beginning of his ministry, he spent the next, Jerusalem, the next Passover in Cana, and then he spent the third Passover back in Jerusalem, and both times he cleansed the temple. How often do we go through the motions of church, maybe even Bible study or Sunday school, and nothing changes in us? You, you cannot encounter the living God and walk away changed. You can't do it. Walk away not changed. Big difference. You can't encounter the living God and walk away unchanged. We need more than a corrective. We we, we need a Savior to show us our values and what matters most and, and pull us out of this death spiral because getting our values wrong will lead to destruction. Here comes Jesus, the roaring lion who comes to bring us that corrective. The prophet Malachi in the 400s B.C. spoke of a divine messenger who would come to the Lord's temple and purify it. He spoke of the Messiah who would restore worship. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, those corrupt priests, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. You know, Jesus didn't just restore proper worship by driving out these sinners and these money changers and sellers of animals. He didn't just cleanse the temple by by correcting the priests. He, He offered his own body as a new temple. The zeal that Jesus had for God's glory did indeed consume him. It consumed him to the point of death on a cross. When the Jewish officials heard the commotion out in the temple courtyards and they saw this young rabbi running around with a whip and chasing everybody out and telling them to get out, they demanded that he show them proof of his authority. What sign do you offer for for telling everybody what to do here? They're basically saying, just just who do you think you are to come up here into our place and change how things are done? We got a system here, and it works. So Jesus dares them destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. I love that answer. And of course, they're spiritually blind, so they don't understand what he's saying, but he's talking about his own death and his resurrection. And they would indeed violently tear him down. They would kill him. And he would indeed be raised again. And and he had a part in that. He said, I will raise it up. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit worked together to bring about resurrection. So much of John's Gospel is about revealing who Jesus actually is. He is the perfect spotless lamb. He is the Lion of Judah. And now he's the perfect temple. And if Jesus' body is the temple, then their temple is no longer necessary. Jesus comes to end the legal system of rituals, and grace and truth have now come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect sacrifice and the perfect temple. The old has gone, behold, the new has come. So what are we zealous for today? Are we passionate about the things that God is passionate about? I know people who can get so fired up about politics, nothing fires them up more than politics. I know people who get so fired up about sports, they'll go and stand for six hours at a football game and scream their heads off, that's, yes, that's an hour and a half before, an hour and a half after <laughs> the football game, and s- scream and stand the whole time, but they won't come and when we stand up at church, they say, really, again, another song? Is there anything more compelling in our culture today than politics or sports? I think Jesus is. If we're not moved by Jesus, if we're not compelled by the Holy Spirit, if the God of the universe is not deeply satisfying and richly compelling to us to seek him and his ways, then we are prone to falling into idolatry and getting our values mixed up, which leads to destruction. Are our values in order? Do we worship at worship? Do we work at work? It's good to have a job and work hard at it. Work at your work, that's great. Play at your play. Have a hobby and enjoy it. Recreate in order to recreate, that's great. Rachel's playing basketball again, their team's undefeated, our team hadn't won a game yet, it's okay. Are we like most people in our culture confused about our values? Do we need a lion of Judah to come in as a corrective? Do we keep the main thing the main thing and let everything else fall into proper place in our lives? If we get worship right, everything else will fall into place. How are we doing with worship, both as a church and as individuals? Richard, this choir, I mean, they, they lead us every week in worship are we engaging with the holy God are you just going through the motions do you just check off sitting in a pew each week do you sing and lift your hearts to the Lord and praise and gratitude for all that he's done even if you don't feel like it I don't feel like singing all the time but sometimes I do it out of obedience and my heart turns to the Lord do you encounter the Lord through his word every week Do you allow him to speak to your heart and receive that word he has for you? Finally, will will you receive Jesus' corrective today? He comes to purify our worship, and that may mean that he chases you with a whip and it may hurt. It can be terrifying, but it's necessary to allow for extreme measures. Are we as fed up with sin and idolatry as much as he was that day in the temple courts. I'm not talking about us going out in our culture with a whip and us whipping others, right? Fix it. That's not what I'm talking about. We're not Jesus. He has the authority to wield the whip. We do not. What I'm talking about is applying that whip to our own lives. Actually allowing Jesus' purification on ourselves. Let us become people who are so zealous, so overflowing so burning, so full of him that nothing else can intrude. Do you know what will happen if we do this? We'll develop a real reverence and awe for for God and and, and all that we do in our lives. People will see that. They'll see our ethos as a people, that it's real and authentic. That will affect our, our worship wherever we are. And Woodmont Baptist Church will be a house of prayer for all nations. The grace of God will go forth. May God deliver us from idolatry, from any lower concept of Jesus Christ, anything less than we see in our awesome, transcendent, omnipotent, omniscient lion and lamb. Let's pray. Our Lord God, Sometimes we get comfortable in our sin. We start to prefer the things of this world over your perfect, holy things that you offer us. Forgive us. Bring the correction as a lion who comes roaring into our world, into our lives, and drives us into a place of correction where we can thrive and flourish God I know so many people and in my own life when I get comfortable in sin when I settle for the things of this world it leads to destruction I've seen it in my life and others bring us back purify our worship let us burn with zeal for the things that you burn for for justice for worship for mission for kingdom work in our communities, and our neighborhoods, and around the world. Give us a heart for the things that you care about. Maybe get more fired up about encountering you and your word and your worship than we do about any sports team or any political candidate or party or whatever. Forgive us for chasing after the things that don't ultimately settle but lead us only to ruin. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are both the lion and the lamb and that you defy all of our preconceived notions and comfortable preferences. This is not a consumeristic project. You determine who you are, you alone. May we understand that and burn with zeal for you and you alone. May you be Lord not only of our hearts, but Lord of our lives as well. We pray this in Jesus' holy, powerful name, the lion and the lamb. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. We're going to sing Jesus is Lord of all. When we baptize someone here in these waters, we ask them what their confession is, and they say, Jesus Christ is Lord. That means he's master. That means he's the boss. That means he's in charge. That means that our work doesn't define us, but Jesus does that we've surrendered everything that we are, everything that we have, everything that we will be to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Maybe you need to to make Jesus Lord of your life for the very first time. Maybe you've never surrendered all that you are to him and received that free gift of salvation. I invite you to come forward during this time of invitation and surrender your life to him. Maybe you're doing life kind of on your own and you need a, a church family. This is not a perfect family. We are a broken people, just like any other church. But this is a family of faith. We have young, old. We have people who will love you and support you and do this journey with you in a family that I believe is tighter than blood. It's more real than blood relations, more intimate than blood relations. If you want to become a member of Woodmont Baptist Church, come forward during this time. If you just want to come pray with somebody, maybe you got some physical ailment and you just want to pray, the Lord would heal you. The Lord does that. He, he says to come forward and let, let people lay hands on you and pray for healing. If you want to do that, I encourage you to come and pray with Jan or, or Brad or Trey. They're going to be up here. Or if you just want to come and pray with them about some issue you got going on, your, your niece in prison or your you know, divorce or whatever it is you're going through right now, we're, we're here to pray for you. If you just want to come kneel at the altar and pray for a concern too, it'll be open as well. Whatever it is you need to do in this time, let's stand and sing. Jesus is Lord of all.